Well, we hope you enjoyed our first conversation with Greg Cook. If you missed it, go back and listen to that one first. I think it, it uh, added a lot of good history and, and really set the stage for what we're going to talk about in this next uh, episode. So uh, today with part two of three with Greg Cook, we started out with the intangibles of a really good clinician. And so I was really excited to ask this question for two people that have been around. You know, you've been, you and uh, Greg have been on the circuit, Brett, for a long time. You've been around amazing clinicians. And so we kind of broke down what it really takes to get someone better, to, to be a really good clinician and to add these things in. Yeah, I mean, I always look at it, I call it the it factor, which is basically you have everything that makes for great clinicians and then you have this other, literally 50% of the equation, which is uh, your ability to confront a person, your ability to motivate a person, your ability to be empathetic with somebody. And I think that you know, you go through school, whether it's Cairo or PT, and you are never told how important this part of the equation is. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're around uh, uh, Gray, and he's a son of a preacher. And I mean, you can just tell he's got like a really good way of communicating with people. And we just wanted to kind of expose what some of those things are that aren't being talked about that are helping driving results. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it's a really, really important point that, that never gets discussed. I agree. We had uh, a, a teacher at a, a Cairo school, we won't name any names or anything like that, but she, she basically reached out to us and said, this is going to be an essential you know intro to her class. And I think it, it really is. It's one that I've listened to a couple times and have really pondered over. And I think uh, this is something you can, you can keep coming back to because this is the part, like you said, never gets talked about. And it's not like there's a seminar you can go practice it's a lot of your own thoughts, your own feelings, and, and uh, setting the standard there. And I think, too, like you have your great clinicians and you have your great healers. Your great clinicians don't necessarily get miracle after miracle after miracle all day long. So I think like kind of exposing like some of the people that we, you know, sometimes we look at, we're like, I mean, I can't believe that they're getting these kind of results. And that kind of exposes the other ability to actually heal a human being. And I just think it's kind of like a Venn diagram. I think you want to be a great clinician, but you got to also understand what great healers do. And I think we want to be both. Absolutely. Well, enjoy this episode and uh, stay tuned for the third one, guys. Have a good day. Welcome back for another episode with the uh, Gasol Education Show. So we're back with uh, Greg Cook. So uh, we kind of went down the history path in our first uh, part of our podcast and talked a little bit more about the SFMA, talked a little bit of philosophy and stuff like that. So I thought would be a really good topic for both of you guys would be um, intangibles. Things that maybe are outside the realm of actual treatment assessment, stuff like that, that make people so successful. Because we always say like it's somewhat easy to treat patients. Some of our interns can roll in and, and do the same adjustment that Brett does or do the same manual therapy adjust, or treatment, but get completely different results. Mm-hmm. And so along with that, like what, so Gray, maybe start off or Brett, if you want to, like what, what are some of those intangibles or what are those things that, that really come into play? We talked about health earlier today, uh, but what are those things personally that, that come into play? I think, I mean, one thing I always think about is the, the humans that have what we call the it factor on the athletic field. You know, there's just certain things that people have that can, you know, will a patient or will a sporting event the way that they want. And uh, I think it's interesting that as far as like a clinician, I always talk about two things that I know for sure that are helpful for a clinician to have. One would be certainty, never cockiness, but always, uh, you know, being certain on what you're doing. And the other thing would be not in a cheesy way, but 
having enthusiasm where the patient almost has a feeling like you would rather be with them there today mm-hmm. than anywhere else. And I think those are like two qualities that I've found over the years that people who are really good at what they're doing, they're, they're able to capture that. And if we say that, you know, 50% of your results are not from what you're doing, it's how you're communicating with your patient and everyone's got their own shtick. Mm-hmm. And kind of hanging out with you last night, or I picked up real quick. I mean, you have a lot of like attributes with your personality and things that could be getting people better. And I'm sure at times you kind of wonder, you know, with your system, you know, like if somebody doesn't have your charm or doesn't have your ability to coach them, do you still get the same result or how much, how much of it is within the person that, you know, the personality trait, the ability to coach someone, the ability to be empathetic, things like that? No, they, I think you've got to number one, meet them where they are. You don't need to kill them with with technical terms or anything like like that, but you can easily communicate almost almost any concept. And I think that uh, one of the things I really try to do is tell them it's okay of all these things going on inside your head. Um, your back hurts. The very first thing that happens is what's wrong with me. Hmm. You never ever say what am I doing wrong. Right, and that's the difference between a structural and functional problem. And I simply try to give them something to hang on right there. Like, you know, there there may be nothing wrong with you except for the fact that you're doing something that's a continuous irritation. You know, if if every day I knock this scab off my arm, it's almost like it's never going to heal. Mm. Right. But I don't have a, a a a disorder in my body that won't allow me to heal. I've got a continuous irritation. And so I will try to make, give them an out or it's, it's very easy for patients to try to make their problem one thing when really we all know it's an aggregate of, of multiple things. I think a lot of patients expect to have perfect linear progress and I already prepare, prepare them for that. It's not going to be linear. Some days are going to be good. Some days are going to be bad. But if you look at the trajectory over the next three weeks, you're going to be at a better place but it's, it's never going to be like we want it to be. It's right. never going to be convenient. It's never going to be easy. And the more behaviors we can sort of realign around this, um, they start to get better. So the, I think being in musculoskeletal health, we do have a little bit more of, of a relationship as a teacher not just as a treater. I mean, as a, on the front end, we've got to be, you know, right up on you, just like a, a physician giving an exam, a surgeon, whatever. But we actually have to push you away and watch that independence come. We've got to, we've got to get you there. And some patients will cling too much, and some want to be independent too quick. Mm-hmm. And reading those personalities, you know, you walk in the room, you read the type A. You read the person who feels they've been wronged or misled by healthcare, and you're just another stop and another disappointment, and they got to get that out of the right. way. You just meet them where they are. But the one thing that you've got to do in the kindest way possible is never let them own the room. They cannot control the That's room. That's a really good point. I've, yeah. I've walked in the room with a pro athlete, and I'm standing there and never looks up, still texting or something like that, and I'm like, Obviously, you're busy. So am I. I'm gonna go kill 15 minutes over here. I'll be back. Hopefully, I'll be ready then. Oh no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm yeah, good. I'm yeah. good. You know. So yeah, set the tone. That's yep, awesome. yep. This is you know. And before you know it, they're they're calling you coach or something like that. But but 
you can you can be nice and and own the room at the same time. Um, I do think it's nice to have uh, establish um, something back and forth. Um, I usually uh, we can discuss a career or hobby and find a little bit of alignment right there, and then they start to talk about how this particular thing is affecting mm. you know them in different ways. Um, but yeah, it's just it's really trying to look at this person's patterns outside of their movement as well. You know, if if um, if they keep changing the subject. You know, lots of lots of different things. Just just keeping that that exam, you know, moving forward, and then not over explaining treatments, but making almost everything self evident. And the other thing I try to do is not everything is about your verbal feedback to me. I need you to tell me what you need to tell me, but I also need to read a lot of things that that you're not controlling right now mm-hmm. and once the, once they realize that they 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 realize this is a this is an examination uh process and i think one of the compliments that i never get tired of hearing is i feel like this is the most thorough exam i've ever had in my life and i'm like that's not just in my room that should be in any room in this facility but i i, I like hearing that but at the same time i'm like what have you been exposed to? You know, right. uh, <laughs> just, somebody just gaze deeply into your eyes and figure out what kind of adjustment you need. I mean, what the, you know, what are the, what's everybody else doing? So I think with SFMA, it allows you to be able to um, have those markers for the patient to see if they are getting better without being enslaved to walking in and having to ask the patient subjectively if they're better. I think the system probably sets itself up really well for that. Would you agree? The test retest is is very helpful. Having a global pattern that you can easily reproduce is nice. And one of the things I've always said is they'll they'll say, "Do you want to know if I did my exercise?" I'm like, "No, I'll know." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Meaning, I I'm not just going to ask you because right. you could say anything. But if the exercises were done the way I taught you and you did them as often as we discussed, you should be doing this right now. That's right. the eighty twenty play. And and it's really funny how quickly people become accountable and start dropping the excuses when they realize that you already know. You right. Know, you don't no, have to tell me sure. that the dog ate your homework, right? <laughs> I, I know you didn't do it. I use the term, I think it's so liberating when you're not reliant on walking into the room and asking how their patients is. So you don't get caught in that trap of chasing pain. And I think it's really easy, especially as a young clinician, to do that. And once you do that, they're going to run you around like crazy. Well, I'll be, uh, let's, let's do a, a typical scenario. I will often have some of the most common sagittal plane, forward bending or backward bending, will usually be somebody who's having a, a acute or subacute low back pain episode, usually flexion or extension, both or one or the other, will set them off. Mm-hmm. Usually, they'll also get set off by rotation. Okay? But when I put them in single leg stance, they'll have pretty good balance on one side and the other side will be pretty bad, but it won't be painful. Okay. So now I've got a balance problem that is not driven by pain and a movement problem that provokes pain. And it's, it's actually easier for me to explain to the patient why I'm going to go for balance first. 
because it's the one time I can go for dysfunction. And if we were to do something, I can get a get on a trigger in your piriformis or I can just mob your hip or just do something to get your core and your pelvis to stabilize a little bit better. And if I can change your single leg stance and then go back and revisit the provoking, I don't need you to have less pain, more pain, or no pain at all. I just need to know if over here modulated that. And so it's really, it's really cool when I can find a dysfunction that's not associated to pain and, and one that is, and they can actually watch me come in from the outside and play the abnormality, mm-hmm. not just get up in the pain and just see, does that feel, does that feel better? Right. Cause you can do that anytime you want, yep. but there's only one time when that pain is fresh and un, um, unruffled by you. And if you can do something that, that sends that signal over I think that in a way in your own confidence and theirs too, gives you perfect right to go away from the pain site and do things logical. And so I, a lot of people say, how do you explain when you're working on a different part? It's been part of the observation and examination, so I never do have to explain it. They, have the, they know that there's more wrong with them than just flexion pain, mm-hmm. right? That's what they want to go away, right. but, but it's really neat to um, just show them these other things you're looking at. And then all of a sudden, they have an appreciation for function because I have made as many functional uh, notations and comments about the way they move as the movements that provoke pain. I'm not letting pain be the sole subject of the sentence because rarely are we working on people free of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was talking about them equally. I don't wait, make one more important than the other. And then they understand that some days I'm going to not feel much better, but I'm going to be moving a lot better and, you know, vice versa. And it really does help keep them, keep them between uh, the lines. I mean, they, they, they quickly become part of a better physical culture. Mm-hmm. Um, our clinics uh, customarily have always been, uh, we, take, we take our job serious, we take ourselves pretty lightly. Um, we've got, uh, running jokes going all the time. Uh, best compliment I get from patients. I wish I could work in a place like this, you know, and we used to have that, that back in the old days is just, we, we took a team approach and, uh, I think I, it wasn't because of my leadership. Uh, I get very temperamental. I've made people cry at work. I've done a lot of things, but I think people realize I'm just playing real hard and I expect you to, too. Mm -hmm. But I think we look like we're having a good time because we actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that comes back to the enthusiasm piece too. I mean, not the cheesy enthusiasm, but you actually are having fun and people, they pick up on energy in a room in a yeah. second. No, and, and who wants to wake up and work? But if I got to work, this, this ain't a bad job. <laughs> right. you know? I mean, I've dug ditches and roofed houses too. This is, this this is better bad. than that. This <laughs> we had a uh, Michael Gervais on recently, and we were talking about the concepts of mastery across many different disciplines and fields. And one thing that we talked about was mastery is about stringing moments together in your life. So what we kind of got Michael talking about was, you know, for us, every day of our life, we're seeing new patients and we're basically, you know, putting together this journey. And every day we're trying to be a little bit better than we were the day before. And I feel like a lot of people in physical therapy and chiropractic, they're not good at doing that. I mean, their careers are basically just straight lining. So, I mean, what is your advice for the for our listeners out there on how to, I mean, I guess the word is the grind or, you know, stick it with it or whatever, whatever you want to call it. 
how do you, you know, how do you get to be 55 years old? You're Gary Gray and you're still pumped up to wake up in the morning and talk about this stuff. I, I'm, I'm interested in problem solving. I, I like deconstructing these, these messes and, and, it, and it's a challenge to me. And, um, the test retest is not about the patient. It's about my influence on the situation. And, and so I, I actually get to, to go test myself on these cases. And it's real, real easy to lean, lean on talent, lean on experience, lean on the fact that you've been here before. And it's actually hard, but we were talking about this the other day. I like, in my practice right now, I just do my thing, but I always want somebody else to have done a screen, an assessment, a test, because I'm not trying to influence the experiment. I truly want an independent um, survey of my pre-post test because I don't want to mislead myself. And so any time that, that I was working with colleagues in the past, I would always say, hey, would you mind checking this? I'm not, I'm not going to check my own work and tell you I did a great job, because I will every time, right? <laughs> and we all will. So, so I, I, I like doing that. And, and I also like offering, here, you mean to recheck that for you? And, and we sort of, there's nowhere to hide. There, we're not going to believe our own bullshit. We're, we're going, we take a, new, a course from somebody else. We're going to come back to the clinic. We're going to run that for two weeks out of the honor of the fact that we learned it from somebody else. If it sticks, it sticks. If, if after two weeks you have no obligation to keep using it unless it's giving you a competitive advantage mm-hmm. or a different access right. point or something like that. But... Um, no, I just, I, I'm truly interested in how easy it is to adjust the human movement system if you are not married to one particular uh, technique or philosophy or in one particular opinion. If you just let the patient's case wash over you, um, and you are becoming more sensitive to differential diagnosis, metabolic problems, sleep disorders, things like that, you'll easily see where, where this thing's getting mucked up. And I do think we've got to drop back and be a little bit more holistic lifestyle coaches just because uh, Dan Heath just did a great book, uh, Upstream. And, and most medical problems that we're treating right now, we treat it where we identify the problem and that's never the place where you truly get the problem. Nobody's going to ever thank you for going upstream and solving a problem. It's just got to be something that you have intrinsic value in doing. Now, you'll close a lot of cases and you'll be very successful. But going upstream literally is a little bit harder um, than you have to do. Meaning right. I, could, I could easily show up and make my job easier, mm-hmm. but then I'd get bored. It wouldn't be challenging. And And... How boring would it be? And, and I hope nobody out there is going to be offended by this, but a pharmacist is literally taking a number and dispensing it. There's, I, outside of a system of checks and balances, they don't really add value to the situation. Probably will be replaced by bots pretty soon. I would hate to think that somebody in rehabilitation could be uh, replaced by a bot. So if, if you are not 
bringing a different diagnosis to the person than the one they think they have. If you're not looking at the different layers that all compound movement, if you're not being proactive on some risk factors that you're not going to get paid extra to remove and you're going to remove them anyway, it just it, it enriches the, the entire experience knowing that you're really truly closing a case and this person's life is on a different trajectory and it could be going a whole different way right now. And I don't need them to thank me or, or do like that. I realize if we hadn't done these things, you'd, you'd be living a much smaller life right now and, and doing, doing way less. So there's, there's got to be some intrinsic value in there. And the real challenge is never on the treatment end. It's on the diagnostic end. So that keeps me, that keeps me like engaged because a lot of people will carry the same diagnosis and we will take a completely different plan mm-hmm. with, with them based on the other things that we're doing. If I'm hearing you right, and Brett always talks about it, it's the love of the game. It's a game within a game. It's, it's continuing to almost like have little competitions with yourself throughout the day, throughout your life, throughout your week and stuff like that. Which I think is like, that's something that I, we all have been competitors, we've all been in sports and stuff like that. And so having a way that you can now make what you do every single day and make a living with, Mm -hmm. that's a little bit of a game competition, Mm -hmm. even if it's just yourself or with that patient and stuff like that. And it's always hard because I always say in the treatment room, there's not a scoreboard there. Like if we're playing a game right now or you're getting wrecked in bags like you two did earlier. um, Uh. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, whoops. Um, you kind of always know where you're at. Whereas like if you're out in, you know, small town, Virginia and physical therapy, you don't always know where you're stacking up against other people in the world, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it gets monotonous. People use the word boredom, the grind and stuff like that. And I think you got, you're constantly looking for ways to make yourself better throughout the day. And I think that's one way to prevent the, the burnout from happening. No, a, a, a lot of the solidarity with the group I started with, we took road trips together, mm-hmm. either to take courses or teach courses. Mm-hmm. And it was those road trips and those that 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 competition that we did inside. So yeah. you got to realize the movement screen came out of a very small market and an endeavor for us just to say, how come nobody's doing a global movement screen, a global movement provocation, and why can't we attach this to a pre-participation physical? Mm-hmm. And then we did, and there was a 20% fail rate due to pain of kids that had already passed their physical. That means one of the movements on the movement screen actually caused pain in the kid, and he'd already passed his physical. So then what do you do with that? Well, we didn't know what to do. Right. <clears throat> but Lee was the head athletic trainer, so we watched it. We, we, we got to say, well, how long is your back? You know, it just gave, brought in that conversation. And we didn't really make a lot of decisions on the rest. We just basically let the landscape be what it was. And sure enough, I mean, it, you start seeing these patterns repeat themselves. Guys who, who have very stiff leg raise and can't squat, they could be very strong, they could be very muscular, but people with more ones just wound up being in the training room more. They just they just did. Well, I mean, we. I was actually leading you into this question earlier, and we never talked about it. I mean, you talk about a perfect place for FMS to be on a school physical. Like a lot of, I, I don't know, in the physical therapy world, but a lot of chiropractors who do sports physicals, mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about a perfect place for... No, it, and it I makes mean, a it, lot of sense. And and but but also think how scary it is. The movement screen is then removed, and, and now the only difference in... 20 years later, the rate of pain is 
on a kid that just passed a mm. medical physical. They got pain in a movement pattern that's one body weight, one rep, mm. within normal goniometry, and at way slower speeds than they're getting ready to be in. You know, you, you can't deep squat, but you're at the bottom of a pile in football. That's can't be a comfortable right, place right. to be. <laughs> Where you got 300 pounds on your back. and a- Exactly, exactly. So, you know, when we did that, we were already out on a limb. And next thing you know, we're five years invested in this and we're just all thinking this way. We're at, you know, these huge universities showing these D1 programs how to actually take care of their players a little bit better. And... We never sought sponsorship. We never sought a research grant. We didn't. We just wanted a better way to quickly see who needs an orthopedic assessment and who doesn't, mm-hmm. you know. And out of that grew this entire corrective exercise connection tool, whereas if we know what pattern's broken, certain exercises fix certain patterns better than other ones do. Sure. Well, if we hadn't had the screen to bounce that off of, because in the early days, we, there were a lot of functional exercise books out there. We bounced all the exercises that we had been taught off the movement screen. The movement screen said, side planks don't change me. Mm. Okay, they, they may change the way your core engages, but they don't change movement quality of these fundamental patterns. Uh, rolling, unbelievably powerful. You know, the, the kneeling, the quadruped, the half kneeling position, stuff like that, unbelievably powerful. Um, reciprocal. Um, movements, uh, very powerful. So we didn't just come up with these exercises and say, we like these. We kept bouncing stuff off the screen and it told us what was efficient and effective and what wasn't. And and there are certain exercises that work better for some people than others. The other uh, amazing thing in our journey we found out is the Y-Balance test and the FMS disagree with each other 20% of the time. And Phil Plisky and I could have easily gotten a mudslinging contest and said, well, my test is better than your test. And the court has not talked about it. This is shut yeah, yeah, yeah. There. But no, no, this was, a, this was in our conflict. And this is just how FMS works. The, we, we, we realized the functional movement screen proper is built with a mobility bias. We're going to catch stiff ankles, stiff hips, T-spines, and shoulders real quick for you. Okay? We can also check a pretty weak core, and we can line you up with exercise. The YBT is a way more um, organized balance appraisal because we got this incremental uh, thing where, see, a a movement screen only puts you in a category. It doesn't measure anything. The YBT is called a test, not a screen, because it measures something. All the movement screen does is put you in a category. What we were seeing, and we're seeing more of this now, just like, and I guess it's environmental, but we're, we're seeing more autism, we're seeing more dyslexia, we're seeing even more seasonal allergies and asthma, and we're seeing more uh, congenital hypermobility. So this is the bite and brighten criteria that would have somebody in that upper end of maybe not ALARS downloads, but more of a collagen. Built loose everywhere. Yeah, yeah. built loose everywhere, right. They're constructed that way. So if the FMS is built with a mobility bias, and the YBT is built with a stability bias, then somebody who's born extra flexible is only going to have maybe one bad station on the FMS. That's going to be the Mm push-up. They're not going to be able to connect it up. But their overall score is going to be impressively high. But this is not flexibility that they've been maintaining or earning. This is just extra flexibility. 
when the same person who appears to score high on the FMS gets over to the YBT, if they're sort of loosey-goosey and not in good motor control of their extra uh, uh, motion, they're going to look really bad on the YBT. Mm. Okay. Whereas I got a stiff guy with a lot of athletic um, acumen is going to look very bad on the FMS, but get over here to the YBT, your guy can pistol all day long. So it's really neat not to say this test is good, this test is bad. These tests are telling you about this person. And so hypermobiles, don't need to stretch a lot, but most hypermobile people will always ask you to adjust or stretch them. They feel tight. They feel tight. Right. But they actually, if you do good stabilization work, if they do some breathing and rolling, if they're doing some of the neural developmental stuff, they loosen up. Mm-hmm. Ironically, yeah. Because they become more stable because now you're 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 changing um Tension for tone. Mm -hmm. Tension is preloaded, and it's what people who have extra flexibility do. They walk around tense because if they let go, they don't have those extra connective tissue um, parking brakes to, to, to lean on. So it was really neat to play this out and see how each of these tests contributes to the story that we're getting ready to get in. But we could have easily... Um, just ignored that discrepancy, or we could say, no, even that discrepancy helps us understand, right? And that's why um, when we were talking earlier, I talked, you know, if, if, if I'm um, doing a, a sports physical, everybody's getting the screen. Anybody with a previous injury, especially lower quarter, upper quarter, should probably have that balance uh, too. Mm-hmm. It do- Now, if somebody over here on screening doesn't have a previous injury, but we see Hurdle steps horrible, lunge is horrible. We can get a great snapshot of their balance over here on YBT. And as as I'm talking, think about what we're saying. We see a lot of concussions in female soccer, and we see a lot of concussions in football, and a few in wrestling and stuff like that. Once somebody's been in a concussion, we can do a lot of cognitive stuff to clear them to play, and neurologists get involved, and we've got a lot of verbal things we can do and count backwards, but. What if somebody gets a concussion and their movement screen drops three points and their YBT gets mm-hmm. sideways? If they can count backward perfectly, is the concussion over or does it still affect the kinetic system? See, right. what's the baseline we're setting for the kinetic system for people who are going to be in a high concussion environment? And is the only recovery from concussion that we're supposed to be looking at a cognitive exchange or would I also like to see a kinetic exchange of information? So I, I honestly think if we if we expand our mind on screening and movement testing, this is a nonverbal way to ask the body a question. And it's a nonverbal way to ask the subconscious body a question. If you got bad balance, there's nothing you can do with the conscious mind to make that better right now. And if you can't deep squat, there's really very little you can do with the conscious mind to do that. So a screen or a test done correctly is a way to check a verbal response against a nonverbal response. Hmm. I feel tight, but you don't test tight. Mm -hmm. I feel weak, but you don't test weak. Or I feel strong, but you test weak. So we've got conflicting information and usually some of our worst cases it's an awareness problem first they don't realize where their weakest link is and i've told people that 
I don't think a low movement screen predisposes you for an injury. I think having an unbelievably low movement screen and not knowing you do allows you to put yourself in places you, you wouldn't wouldn't be exposed. So I think most athletes that have less than optimal movement screens, they know it. They work around it. I mean, uh, LeBron's movement screen is not that good, but LeBron doesn't have to get out of his own comfort zone. LeBron is a fixed entity. The game's playing around him. He doesn't have to adapt in the game anymore. Right. And and the movement screen is really a friend to you, and good good points in the movement screen are a benefit to you when you're trying to adapt. Because I think a, a, a mobile and stable body demonstrates the plasticity required to adopt a new skill or break a bad habit. Mm-hmm. That, that plasticity is right there. And, and when you see somebody who who physically doesn't have a lot of mobility and stability, any time um, they've got to learn movement, it's just going to be longer and harder. One other observation we made of using our data correctly, when Mike Contreras inserted the movement screen in the Firefighter Academy for Orange County, you can't really tell seasoned firefighters how fit they're supposed to be, but you can do anything you want with a recruit or somebody at Academy. Movement screens across the board, and everybody gets injured at the academy. We're pushing people hard, they're on obstacle courses, so in an environment where almost everybody's getting injured, how does the movement screen service there? What we noticed is the 20% of the population with the lowest movement screens used 80% of the resources of the academy to get back on track. The 80% with higher movement screens used 20% of the resources to get back on track. So a low movement screen and an injury is actually somebody getting an injury and they also have multiple risk factors. Right. They, we're not saying that, that, I think it's logical that if you're carrying around a lot of unnecessary stiffness and weakness and stuff like that, it could easily compound inefficiency movement. But they're still in play when you're trying to recover. And, and so, you know, at some point, it will be within our discipline to be actively managing these risk factors that we already know we should be doing, but nobody's going to pay us to do it. Nobody's going to tell us to do it, right? Some of us are going to have to do a little bit extra to raise the bar on everybody, and then then we've got a different way of practicing. Speaking of risk factors, uh, man, you gave Taylor and I a great little lecture yesterday at your office before we left, and you basically had a matrix written out. We don't exactly organize that that way in our model, but I think the point was so good where – there is health problems and there's movement problems. I mean, we can call it functional medicine cases, whatever you want to call it. The point is, the best clinicians in the world, I feel like they're able to walk into the room and kind of decide what that patient actually needs today. Can you talk a little bit about that matrix you drew for us and like how being able to sniff out that healthcare problem is one, it's probably picking out your non responder, but the other thing it's doing it would allow you to get that person to the right person to be helped if that's not yourself. Well, exactly. Well, uh, we're in musculoskeletal medicine. It, very seldom do you walk in a room where the word inflammation doesn't come up. How many sources of inflammation can we have in our lifestyle and our diet that have nothing to do with your musculoskeletal work capacity or stress? So um, we got certain foods, uh, gluten and dairy, highly inflammatory um, in many people's systems. We've got people, uh, blue light problems, sleep deprivation. Um, We've got people with breathing issues, shallow breathers. These are all things that basically create an acidic environment in your tissue 
and then you put exercise on top of it. And so if, if I got somebody and we're already dealing with, with, I think, inflamed tissue and the pain spasm cycle and all these things, a good night's sleep, a hydration talk, and just enough treatment so they can be comfortable, maybe uh, give them a breathing exercise or something like that, that is really first order of business. Mm -hmm. Is, is you know, these people come in and it's almost like a, a jar of, of water, right? Muddy water, you shake it up, I can't see a thing, but if we can let this settle out over a few days and I can slow you down or hold you back, there will be a time for all this musculoskeletal stuff, but if, if I'm trying to get my techniques in early, I'm not being a healer. I'm just trying to give you my, the showmanship of the thing I do best, and and sometimes you got to wait for it. You got to you know you got to set up all the dominoes and reset them up and reset them up, and then that one day, there they go. But but I have just as much um, enthusiasm setting up the dominoes for next Thursday as I do racking them and cracking them in the room next door. It right. just, it, you know I don't have to I don't have to go for the dunk every day. I'm right. going to win this game. You know, and so it's it's really neat setting up that situation like that, but also waiting for it. So when I walk in a room, I am uh, I, the the layers we talked about yesterday are health is I think your current state of readiness that would include your vital signs, mm -hmm. any acute distress or pain you currently have, um, other extenuating circumstances uh, in these cycles of your life, right? time-based cycles. That's if, you, if you're looking at somebody's health, look at the cycles that all humans go through and look at the quality of their cycles, right? The sleep cycles, the elimination cycles, the breathing cycles, the heart rate variability, look at all that and you'll have a good cross-section of somebody's health. If you want to look at their wellness, which is their future state of readiness, believe it or not, their movement system is the canary in the coal mine. Their movement system will tell you their future state of readiness. So if all your physical is good, but you've got some pain with movement, or you've got some dysfunctional movement, or you've got some serious mobility or stability problems, it's not going to be as good for you in the future. And it doesn't mean that a lack of movement is causing the problem. There could be an underlying problem causing the limitation in movement. We don't know what it is, but believe it or not, the more we look at whole movement, the more we look at uh, balance uh, test, the quicker we can see then when we over-treat or over-exercise somebody or undo it. So I'll always have a few of those little movement things I'll do. But if I've already got you on heart rate variability and I've already got you on a breathing screen, mm -hmm. we're doing those too. Mm -hmm. So the very first order of business for any exercise or exertion I ask you to do is actually to reset your cycles, not to upgrade your patterns, right? right? Your movement patterns then are your activity behaviors. And we've got a lot of fit people that don't exercise. I'd say most of the world doesn't exercise, but they're way more fit than many people around here that do because of the natural toil of life. They've, I mean, I think the World Health Organization in a study 10 years ago has the average human, not the average American, the average human walking four plus miles a day. Uh, no, <laughs> we, we don't even cover that yeah, PE class. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's three weeks or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so my next layer is then fitness. Okay, so I said health, wellness, and the difference in health and wellness, because they're always jumbled together. Health is your current state of readiness. 
Wellness is how many risk factors do you have interfering with your future state of readiness? Because this is the thing that's going to lower our insurance rates or raise them in the future, not our current the, the, the measurements we take. Well, after looking at these musculoskeletal risk factors for the last three years, um, the Y-Balance test contributed uh, four of these risk factors. The FMS contributed three, and then pain with movement and you know BMI. And what we got is these 15, 16 risk factors, a few are observational and a few are actionable, all right? Uh, when somebody ha- is obese, we can't do anything about that today, right. but it is a sign of malnourish. Um, uh, so there's probably a dietary problem, activity problem, but we don't attack that with movement right away. You know, and we're not going to see. So we just watch the obesity, but we look at all the the habitual movements to do that. So fitness to me is about capacity. It's about your physical capacity, your work capacity. So I can't really call you fit or unfit by looking at you or doing any tests because I don't know what environment you're in. Biologically speaking, if you're fit for your environment, that means you can go long-term in this environment with homeostasis um, and be what we would call a durable performer. You're, you're, you're available enough to do what you're supposed to do, and that's what we start looking at in, when we get up into sports and in real physical production, whether it be in labor um, athletics or, or tactics, are you producing, okay, when, when you have to physically do something, are you available? I don't care why you're not here. It could be due to an injury, a psychosocial problem. It doesn't matter why. When, when we see people not there enough, there's a durability problem somewhere. At a, uh, we did a study at Quantico one time at Marine Officer Candidate School, and the lowest third of movement screens had a 50% greater rate of not finishing. Hmm. Okay? Of that, half of them didn't finish because they got an injury. The other didn't finish, but it wasn't an injury. Either way, the low movement screen, I think, was the person whose mind may have written a check their body couldn't cash. Hmm. So you know when you're out of your element. And if you keep pushing, you'll probably get injured. And if you don't, you still know you're out of your element. You'll probably quit. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like SEAL training. They, they, if you get injured trying to become a SEAL, you're welcome back. But if you quit, you can't come back. Right. So um, I, just, I just think that, that these little movement tests give us a chance to find out if they're even aware mm-hmm. that there's a movement problem. And, and right now... The thing we must constantly remind ourselves of is average ain't normal. The the average American is obese. Mm. I don't think that's the optimal <laughs> state for a human. But I'm not blaming anybody. I'm saying, you know, malnourished is malnourished. Your system's not running as good as it <laughs> could run. Some people we can blame more lifestyle. Some people we can blame more activity levels. But I think I'll just blame poor musculoskeletal medicine because I think we're a... By not closing our cases like I think we could, we're part of the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. Not all these people are on opioids because of because of headaches. Mm-hmm. You know, we we left we left a lot of bad tissue on the table. We left a lot of joints that could have easily been taken better care of. We we let people exercise incorrectly and didn't say a thing about it. So on our watch, 
we've got people thinking the only solution to their pain is a total joint or 10 months of PRP or something like that. No, we got to close musculoskeletal cases and uh, keep keep better records. And before you know it, we'll have the thing fixed. But but we got to own that. We gotta Since own. obesity is such a uh, epidemic problem right now, what would be your approach in addressing it with somebody? So they're a new patient of yours, and let's say they're their BMI is 35. It's the elephant in the room. So what, what is the approach? When do you approach it? How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, um, I, I don't really have to call it out. It's usually something that they're already saying. I know I need to lose weight, but every time I try to exercise, I get hurt. I'm like, well, it makes a lot of sense because you have a very narrow movement path right now. You know, there, there's some orthopedic issues. You obviously, you know, uh, are heavier than you want to be. That creates its its own thing. So what I basically start saying, and Alan Cosgrove is awesome at this. He, he actually um, is an expert in weight loss. But by doing the movement screen as well, he already knows these horrible movement patterns, right? He uses the correctives as the fitness load because number one, it, it's creating a movement quality, but that's about all the metabolic load they can take. So their only exercise is maybe the addition of walking after a meal a little bit, just, just for the sheer gravity <laughs> of, of that, just, just doing something rhythmical. And then the corrective exercise that's helping you move well is the metabolic load that's going to get you moving mm-hmm. off. And so we don't really focus on the weight coming off. We focus on the movement dysfunction, knowing that that reorganization is going to have its own metabolic real estate. But I honestly think dusting off those old movement patterns really does open up. They they actually get a little bit addicted to moving once it's not this dysfunctional or this painful. So I think when you when you look around, these are people who are not enjoying a moving experience. They're trying to achieve, they're trying to become comfortable moving without moving. Right. And I don't want anybody to, to push through pain, but we've got to find those slots where people can move. And then we start opening back up. But you cannot recommend general exercise to people that are obese anymore because exercise itself is a risk factor for injury right now. And, and when we see people who are heavy and have pain with movement and have balance problems, that's a compounding situation. It's, right. it's, it's, they're going to have an orthopedic issue before they achieve any meaningful amount of weight loss at all. So you could, if somebody's carrying five or six musculoskeletal risk factors, you could almost justify that they should have a medically managed weight loss program. And I'm not talking about with their, just their GP. I'm talking about with a chiropractor or physical therapist saying, you've got to stay in this lane of exercise because impact is going to set you back and heavy bending is going to set you back. But right here in this lane for six weeks, you're going to be a different version of yourself. And then we're going to have more options. So, mm-hmm. and I think, and you mentioned this in the beginning, I think the great clinicians, they need to be able to confront their patients. They have to be able to not be afraid to tell them some things that they need to do to, to drive some change. And then it sounds like what you, what you just said too, is you got to be a little bit of a coach and a motivator along the way, mm-hmm. you know, like you've, cause they, these people, again, they know they're overweight. They've had 20 people before you tell them this. So how is this situation going to be different? I think those are maybe two things that potentially could drive human behavior or drive change. I think I think the 
a lot of people are fearful to exercise. I think a lot of people have had bad exercise experiences. And when I started sort of reframing the way I talk about exercise and leading with awareness and then recalibrating breathing and then reassuming control and picking these paths we go on, what, what we realized is there is no such thing as adult physical education. We had, we had 30 years of gym class, but we didn't have PE. So I still have conversations with people like, do I put ice or heat on it? You know, and I mean, like, this is basic first aid, basic. Everybody knows we eat too many carbs. It's not, right? Yeah, right. But we, we shouldn't. I, I would think that to me, if we've got a class in school, there should be an SOL. There should be a standard of learning, right? Right. If PE is important, why isn't there a standard of learning? You know, if, 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 if I pass eighth grade math, there's a competency for me to say that. What is passing physical education? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Attendance? Is that a participation trophy? <laughs> does that mean you do a standing long jump, your body length? Does that mean right. you can pass a movement screen? Or does it simply mean that no matter what your movement screen was, you have influence over it? Because I honestly watch people change their movement. And their movement will change before their metabolism or their body comp will. But when you take somebody who can't balance, squat, or touch their toes, and then all of a sudden they can, I honestly think that's all the faith they need to say, if I keep moving like this, this is going to drop off. And it does. So, so that the fact that, you know, I, I, I think one of the things I was trying to articulate a little bit earlier is I never looked at my job as a transaction. Hmm. I have an opportunity for transformation. I mean, a lot of really cool things can happen if we get this right for you. Right. And we're going to try really hard to get this right for you. Not in spite of you. You're going to have to participate too, right? (laughs) But but it's really cool to see those transformations happen. Right. That's awesome. The other T word, right? Transformation. Mm -hmm. Transform. I think that's all our little bit of our journey too is just like transforming yourself into who you want to be and, and kind of what path you want to go down next and try to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Clarity, you know? Yep. So What about, uh, you know, I sometimes compare the clinician or the therapist, the chiro, the doctor to a professional athlete in that the best, they're very good at what I would call situa- situational IQ. So if we look at like Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, one of the things they do really well when all the chips are pushed in, they make really good decisions at, at that moment. And, you know, we don't really think about it in our world, but it's kind of the, the same thing. So meaning if you walk into a treatment room, the best in the world, they kind of know when they should dry needle something or manipulate or whatever the modality might be. How do you think people get better at that? I mean, it's like, you know, we were talking earlier, you have a personal experience of Peyton Manning. So, you know, like we look at the differences between like Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger. But so far, there's really only been one Tom Brady. So, like, you know, in our world, what is the Tom Brady able to do? Hmm. That's a good question. I've never even... Wow. Um, I would like to think that a single superlative that you might have... You may have a really good talent in one aspect of being a clinician. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a hole over here, I'll beat you every day. Mm-hmm. 
you're better at one tactic, but I got to own the whole strategy. That means I can't fail anywhere. This is, this is like golf. I got to have a non-failure strategy <laughs> everywhere. And so I've, I've met a lot of clinicians. Most clinicians are better at me in, in one, two, three, four things. But if I've got that level of competency across the board, I'm not trying to get the case to this particular thing. I, I'm just letting it, it, it be what it is. So I think Bruce Lee attested to that when he was developing Jit Kune Do, right? It is a style of fighting that is not posed or pre-staged or needs to be choreographed. I will respond to your move with a counter move that can set me up for both a defensive and offensive situation. So I, I really go in um, the room very loose without anything but a fixed plan of the examination, knowing that I'm going to see a familiar pattern, but there's a lot of different ways to, to play that. So. Have a plan. I mean, I think that's a lot of people make the mistake. Like they show up for their day at work and I mean, they, they figured out when they walk in the treatment room and when honestly it's too late then, you know, any great performer, I think they're kind of planning out and they know A, B and C. And I always say too, it's not always just about the treatment. It's like, uh, what you might verbalize to the patient. You know, if, if you know you're walking into a disaster with Nancy do you know what to say to get her back LinkedIn? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I think uh, as a whole, the people that are treating patients that are not great at kind of planning to see what does this case look like today, what does it look like next week, what does it look like a month from now, and because they don't do that, they don't manage these cases well. Yeah, I mean, I heard Paul Hughes tell me something once. He goes, you know, uh, I would have no problem if 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 one of the ways. I could get paid was to guarantee an outcome. I would have no problem doing that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he goes, yeah, because everybody getting well is on a graph. And if we're a quarter of the way to your goal, uh, time-wise, but we're not a quarter way to your goal, then I'm off track. So I've got to recalibrate. So I'm not just waiting till graduation day, hoping everything works out. Every day, I know the incremental progress I need to see to hit the mark that you don't even know I'm aiming for. So as long as I'm on track with that incremental progress, um, I, I feel I feel pretty good. And the other thing that, that you made me think of when you mentioned all those people is, in a pinch, they want the ball, right? I, I want the ball. And they want it for a few reasons. Number one, I don't know if my colleagues can handle it. I don't know if they want the ball. But I know they want me to have the ball, and so I, I, need, I need to do this, right? Mm-hmm. So early in my career, I was in a situation where I was probably the best set of hands in the clinic. We had a bunch of good therapists, but I was probably the best set of hands. And I knew necks and backs a little bit better than most people. Um, so I set myself up doing um, intake on four to six new patients a day, every day. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't keep all my patients. Right. I would I, I had some PT assistants, some athletic trainers and some other therapists who didn't want the paperwork of the uh, the exam. Well, once I'd run an ultrasound and got hot packs and hooked up East End machines, I'm like, yeah, I got that. <laughs> so tell you what, <laughs> you deal with all that crap and I'll just problem solve these new cases. So by the literally by the time I was five years in as a physical therapist, I probably had done as many 
evaluations as most people with 15 years experience. Wow. Because I enjoyed evaluating more than treating. I already know how 80% of these cases are going to go, and I'm probably right within four or five days. If, if everything else right, goes right, twenty percent um, of the cases, no, I, I'm, I'm going to need to be constantly reassessing. This. this is a complicated case, so I would retain the complicated cases. I would give the spine cases that I gave away to somebody who wanted to be mentored in spine, TMJ, headaches, and stuff like that. I would give my foot and ankle cases to the ATC who wanted to learn more about orthotics, and we we had a really good thing uh, going. So I positioned myself to always have the ball. And I position myself to have always the shittiest patients in the clinic on my schedule because it, they'll rob time from everybody else. I can, I can manage this guy. Mm-hmm. I, I'll handle this guy. The buck stops right here. So I've, I, and what I usually see in clinics is uh, shit rolls downhill. Right. You take your, your patients nobody wants to work with and you keep putting them on people who might not have a good skill set. Well, how are they ever going to get one if you keep giving them cases they can't close? Give them an easy case and say, close it. I close this case in two weeks, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I always try to to um, take take that blow. I, I, I position myself for the most complex and complicated situations knowing stick to the system, right, and and see what you can tell them on the other side. And Anders Erickson, who we lost last year, the, the famous Ph.D. from Florida State, he would say that, you know, people – he used the term deliberate practice, which I really like – but that people will usually not expose themselves to their weaknesses. If you use golfing as an example, you may, if you're hitting 100 balls, the typical person, if you hit your five iron well, you're going to hit 95 irons. And let's say you hit your two iron shitty, then like as an afterthought, you're like, oh, I'm going to hit two. Instead of like, I think what you're telling me is you need to expose yourself to the stuff that you're not good at. Is, is, is what you just said. You do in, I, I, here's the thing. We all suffer from confirmation bias, okay? And nobody is truly objective about themselves. So what is the best protection against confirmation bias? Because we, we all three aspire to be an expert, but part of expertise is gonna be confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. It's coming. It's, it's coming every year. Your ego gets bigger. Your confirmation bias, right, you know, yeah. you're your own self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> so the best way I've ever heard it put is if you wanted to vaccinate yourself against confirmation bias and protect yourself, you have to run a parallel system. You have to run a system in the background. So I know you know where you're going. Let's turn on the GPS as well. Got it? So the, the, the SFMA, the computerized manual muscle test, we, we were doing computer isometric muscle tests a long, long time ago. And the way I would communicate to physicians was not in a narrative. I wouldn't tell them I think or I feel or anything like that. <laughs> we would do a manual muscle test on bilateral comparison. And I would send them strength test in a bar graph, look just like blood work, right? Sodium's up, potassium's down, whatever. Mm. So I would show them this guy has a 45% deficit or weakness in his right shoulder. I'm estimating it's gonna take us three weeks to close this case. As soon as the physician back in those days, because we had to get the extension of physical therapy to do it, as soon as they would see a bar graph, something purely logical showing this this guy is not gonna close this gap on his own, 
right? He's rotator cuff. Um, it was pretty complicated, extensive surgery, strength's not there yet. So I didn't ask or beg or anything. I'm like, this is how weak it is. I think I can close it. So I was writing these very short notes, visually rich, pie charts, bar graphs, and telling them I'm gonna close the case. And the minute I started communicating with physicians that way, I started seeing their family members. You know, my wife's been talking about her shoulder for four months, you know, right. and, and we started, we started doing that, but I realized they, I think many times the, the other professions that we work closely with are a little bit intimidated by what we do and the way we solve problems in close cases, because almost everybody else just dispenses a procedure or a prescription. Mm-hmm. Right, so they, it's almost like they don't cook the food. They just they just pass the burger down Sorry, the line. Yeah. We we got to make this make this <laughs> new salsa every day. We right. don't we don't get to reach in the jar for it. And I think they're either intimidated by what we do, or sometimes maybe we help that along. I, I've never tried to dazzle anybody with it. As a matter of fact, I have a lot of metrics I could have reported to insurance or the physician to say, this is where the case is and this is why we need more time or whatever. But I usually find the most glaring, obvious Mm -hmm. demonstration of dysfunction. And so even if this person has way more range of motion problems, if I can put them in a position and demonstrate how weak one side is, I'll just report a strength problem, even though I've got balance problems, range of motion problems. I'm simply showing you a cross section of a physical problem that's not gonna solve itself. But I didn't articulate that with spooky words and spooky knowledge. Bar graph, guys, we, I think we can, we can close it in three weeks or something like that. And I, I think people really appreciate that. I know the patient did, but I also wasn't down talking to other professions. I just didn't assume they had the musculoskeletal background I did. Just like if, if, if I'm talking to my physician about blood work, I, I appreciate it when he just spells it out. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Push on line. Yep. Well, what a great conversation. We're on, on another hour. So oh, we didn't start off the episode how I wanted to, but this episode is brought to you by Schaefer Wine. So this is the second uh, time this wine is serviced on our podcast. As you guys know, we uh, Brett and I, we're kind of wine stars. We love it. Uh, so this is an insane bottle of wine. The last time we had this was with uh, Mark Miller, Brett. That's so, right. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, it's a great bottle of wine. It's, the, it's your typical Napa Cab, big old fruit bomb, and just delicious. So... Give us, uh, before we cut this out, I say, give us a book or a person outside the world of therapy that has helped you along the way in your journey of being a good clinician. Michael Lewis, Moneyball. <laughs> oh, I, I, yes. It's classic. Yeah. It, numbers. It comes he, down to numbers. He gave me permission to look at my profession differently than than I had ever thought I would have to. He, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Lewis, and the way he tells that story of Moneyball and and the the culture and the history of baseball. They're just things we don't do, but people never ask why. Mm-hmm. And and there is a different human in front of you than you learn to practice on in school. Mm-hmm. There is a different human in front of you, and sometimes we have to pivot, and sometimes on base percentage means more than batting average and right up until that book you know everybody's just looking at what it the batting way. average is right exactly so i honestly think we're going to be looking at new numbers we're going to be looking at new ways to evaluate and help people and 
you can either be on one side of Moneyball or the other, you know. <laughs> but but I think, you know, everybody everybody's waiting for a change. The tipping point's here. And unfortunately, as always, professions don't regulate themselves. The consumer finally gets fed up, asks for a different thing. Um, you know, blockbuster video held out right till the end. Well, people will come to the store. No, they won't. Right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Along that theme, I always tell the story of uh, this baseball stat, which is talked about in that movie. It's called War Wins Above Replacement. Won every year by Mike Trout of the Angels. And so basically what the stat means is how valuable you are to your team. So what I always tell my students is, so if I were to not show up at the clinic to see patients on this Friday and I was replaced with a Tri-9 intern, what is the difference there? And what I tell them is there's a chance someone who's been out 50 years that that student might actually be better than the person they're replacing. You know, And I think that's a perfect way to kind of end it is you would, you would want probably as we move along in our career to be able to say that your war from a clinical standpoint is high. Said differently, if, if you couldn't see a patient and they had to be seen by a PT student who just graduated, what is that difference there, you know? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I just know that sometimes I wish I could just tell these people, if you relax more, you'll hear more, they'll say more, you'll see more, but you just got to relax, mm-hmm. you know? And I think sometimes as, as clinicians, the patient sees the newbie get the tunnel vision. They just they yeah, right. they don't know. But you've you've talked to contractors and mechanics. Some instantly instill confidence in you, and some you're like, hmm, yeah, maybe I'll get get it worked on somewhere else, <laughs> yeah. some other time. Jenny, please, <laughs> I'm gonna hear your opinion, but I'm not gonna follow. Yeah, so so I I try to dispense with the nervousness and truly take about five minutes of just let's get to know each other and. I, I don't think people who replace me do that five minutes as good. I think they do the dry needling. The mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they can do all the other stuff as good. But but since I know all that's coming, why do I have to be anxious? Why do I have to rush to it? Just right. just just meet the person, greet them warmly. Don't keep looking at your watch. And that's all I'm doing different. And and I wish I could tell people when you replace me, the first five minutes is the part you're going to screw up because if you're going if if I thought you were going to screw up the other stuff, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> right. So I'm not that's worried exactly, about the other yeah, stuff. Exactly. But don't forget to be nice. <laughs> well, yeah, don't be a dick. And then ironically too, even like in the athletic field, the key to great athletic performance comes back to relaxation ironically. You know, like we talk about an explosive athlete, to be able to explode your muscles, you have to be able to relax. So ironically, it's just kind of a general theme across everything, really, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And and I think the 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 one way we can't mentally relax is when we start making too many assumptions. You try to call the case. I, I used to play this. Um, I, I had a um, the minute you say inside your head, I think that's a tight hip flexor. That's what it is. You can't say that. You say, ah, that hip doesn't extend. How many things can keep well, that hip yeah, from extending, go. right? The, yeah. the, the capsules, well, so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things that can keep the hip from extending, but why did you, do you want to treat so as today? Why, why did you say it? Don't, don't go there. So think of the way you talk to yourself in, in your head, that, that chatter, 
is getting ready to take you to a place you're comfortable, but not necessarily to the truth. So say what you see. Don't call that a hip flexor. Say that hip doesn't extend. You know, and, and, and then what you'll find is it open. Now you don't have to prove yourself right. I already know the hip doesn't extend. I just got to figure out, are there multiple things or not? And what, what does a guy like James Syriacs give us? We don't have to guess. If that hip is restricted in all directions, but mostly in extension, I've got a classic capsular pattern. Those one joint muscles are locked down. That pelvis is probably sitting a little bit cockeyed, they, they, they might even have some pelvic floor. But if that hip's only restricted in one direction and it's a free moving joint everywhere else, now I've got some fascial lines or some muscle that can give me a unit. So it's all going to unfold. I mean, every onion peels right down to the center every time. Never <laughs> never found an egg or an M&M inside there. It, every onion peels the same way. So don't be in such a rush to peel the onion. We're the same rodeo, man. <laughs> Absolutely. I think just to, to sum it all up, I think stay curious with your patients. Stay curious with your journey. Uh, take time to get to know your patients and get to know the people around you because a lot of times I think that is, that's that's what's going to instill confidence not only in yourself but in your patients. And uh, the treatment side, we, we all know how to do that, right? <laughs> take some time to, to learn this other stuff. And assess really your good. patient. I think that's a theme we mm-hmm. talked about for the last hour was if we assess them well on the front end, we're going to be able to guide treatment mm-hmm. better. Yes. And, and remember, you're setting those baselines to protect them and to inform you. Mm. We never want to make anybody worse. And we need to be the first to admit when we're not making the difference we wish to make. And, and you don't have to apologize for it. You just have to be aware of it because that is medical practice. It is, it is test, retest, but then do something with it. If the retest says you did a good treatment, that doesn't mean we're going to do that same treatment for the next 30 times. We're doing test retest next time too. But <laughs> you close cases pretty quick when you do that. And I don't need the outcome to be anything other than it is. Right. You know? Right. Well said. Awesome. Great second session, guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed our part two with Greg Cook. And uh, have a great day, guys.